We've been reading and hearing about how God has divinely brought in the Gentiles and rescued them, elected the Gentiles, called them, and yet how the Jews have been rejected due to their, their rejection of God. So we're going to continue on in chapter 11 of Romans. Dave, you wouldn't mind just coming up here just for a minute, um, and then I'll get to you in just a second. Uh, Dave Cooper is going to be reading our passage this morning. We're going to tackle all 36 verses of Romans 11, so I thought it would be better to hear from someone else reading those to begin with, kind of break things up. Before we get to that, though, um, just to help you all, in case you're wondering where is the hurricane right now and you're avidly checking your phones, let me help you with that. You can turn them off. You don't have to check the phones anymore. You don't need to do that. Um, the hurricane is currently, the eye is just above Key West, and they're expecting it to go up the West Coast. But we want to take a moment to pray for those who are in the path, pray for those who are currently being affected. And we're going to pray that the sovereign God, who is sovereign over all those things, would move the hurricane away, he would lessen the damage, and he would protect people. So let's join together. We're, we're not at the whim of weathermen, and we're not subject to what people think will happen. We we really rely on a good and sovereign God. And so we're going to pray to him and ask that God would protect and preserve the people who are in the path currently and that he would minimize the damage and he would make the storm less than what everybody is fearfully saying. So let's look to God in trust and rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are God over all. Thank you that you are our sovereign, Lord, that you are the creator of all things. Lord, you created the various pressure systems of the weather. Lord, you created the weather. You created the planet. You created all that is within. God, we appeal to you and we look to you and we ask you, sovereign God, would you move? You're bigger than any big hurricane. God, would you use this hurricane for your glory, for our good, for the good of people, to bring people to you? We pray that first and foremost. Ultimately, that your will be done, that your kingdom might come. God, let that be our ultimate prayer, Lord, that no matter what storms come, physical or otherwise, you, your will would be done, your kingdom would come here on earth like it is in heaven, with ever, whatever means that takes. Now, Father, we, we also pray that you would spare lives, that you would spare people who are in the path or predicted to be in the path of the hurricane, that you would lessen the effects of the storm. God, I pray that you would protect and preserve life, that you would bring people to you through this. God, I pray that where people are fearing, they would turn to you and find hope. God, if people don't know you, God, I pray that they would cry out to you, turn to you, and that you would give them your everlasting hope no matter what storms buffet. God, I pray for all of us that you would calm our hearts and our minds. Will we not be fearful? Will we not worry? Will we rest in you knowing that whatever transpires, we can trust in you even if what we see does not seem good because you are a good God and, and you, you know all things. You know what's best. You want what's best, and you're able to do that. So, God, we look to you in hope. And, God, I pray that you would settle our hearts, our minds, our souls. Will we have peace in you? Would you comfort us? Will we not worry or be anxious about friends or relatives there? Would you preserve and protect their lives? Keep them safe. 
And God, I pray that all of this would ultimately result in, in glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'll go ahead and ask you to stand. We're gonna read God's word in Romans chapter 11. Dave, you can come on up, that'd be great. Um, we don't do this just, just out of ritual, but we do this so that we honor God and show that his word is the only thing that is truly inerrant and inspired. So let's stand for the reading of God's word in Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he, appealed, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supported the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. But if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to become unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths, depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Seated, and we pray. God, I pray that you would use your word to, to humble us, to give us hope, and to cause us to worship. God, I pray that you would empower and enable me as I speak to hear from you, to speak your words. And God, I pray for each and every one of us that you would enable us to hear from you for ourselves, that you would bring hope, that you would bring humility, and that you would bring, God, encouragement and worship. God, we pray all these things. We submit ourselves to you. We pray that we would humble ourselves before you and listen attentively to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think there's something in us that likes to, a little bit maybe, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just sometimes, but there's a little bit in each and every one of us, I think, that likes to see other people who are elevated brought low. It's a little twisted, I know, you know. It's, it's like when we see somebody who is at a certain level brought low, we feel like, yeah, all right, you know, somehow as if them being brought down brings us up. Maybe you experienced that yesterday as you saw Ohio State or Florida State be brought low and, and you saw your team be lifted up. There's a little bit of us that likes to see somebody else be kind of taken down a notch. And I kind of admit, I, as I watched the Ohio State game, little, I watched the ticker, I was like, yes, Oklahoma beat them, finally, you know, because they're ranked number two and Clemson was ranked number three. And that's kind of a perverse desire, isn't it, for someone else not to succeed and then for your, you or you, your team to succeed. It Maybe a concert violinist being happy when the first chair messes up and they take their place. Or maybe a football player, um, the second string quarterback, being really excited because the primary quarterback didn't live up to expectations and so they took their place. There's something in human nature that likes to see proud people brought low. And I think it's in part because we know that everything in life really is a gift inherently. Inherently, as a human, we know that really we, we don't make ourselves, and we kind of know that. Even people who are really successful, even great successes, don't really make themselves, and they can't sustain themselves. And I, I can think of one of, you know, when I was a child, one of my favorite musicians, and still today, although I don't listen to a lot of Mozart, but Mozart was quite a remarkable person. At age three, he saw his sister learning piano when she was seven, and he started picking up piano at age three. And by five, and this isn't to make any five-year-olds feel bad, by five, he wrote um, his first minuets. By eight, he'd written his full, first full symphony. And he was already touring Europe with his father as a child prodigy at seven. Um, he had a lot of gifts. He had a lot of talents. 
At age 13, he heard an allegro, he heard a a musical piece played in Rome, and he wanted the score, but he couldn't get it. He couldn't afford to buy the musical score, no one would give it to him. So he went home, and from memory, after hearing it once, wrote it out, the entire musical score. Only went back a little later and and made some corrections. And from age 5 to 35, because he died at 35, what 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 an early flame to burn out. He died at 35. From age 5 to 35, in just 30 years, he wrote over 600 major works, including 21 stage and opera works, 15 masses, 50 50 symphonies, 25 piano concertos, 12 violin concertos, 27 arias, I don't even know what an aria is, I don't think, 17 piano sonatas, 26 quartets, and many, 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 many other pieces. He is considered one of the greatest musical composers of all time. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue differently. But he was buried after succumbing to some very vague maxillary fever. They're not sure exactly what that was. At 35, he was in major debt, and he was buried in a mass unmarked grave in a cemetery. And now it's only marked where they think the spot may or may not be. They don't even know where one of the greatest musicians and composers of all time where he exactly was buried. It's humbling. And there's something humbling about even seeing the greatest among us brought low. And there's something humbling. It reminds us as we see a great person like Mozart, you realize, hey, at age three, if he's picking up the piano, that's probably a gift that he had that he didn't create. At age five, when he's writing his first minuets, you realize that he he, doesn't, he didn't work at that. That came more naturally to them. Now, he worked later on in his life, but he was only working based on the gifts he'd been given. And everything he'd been given was from outside of himself. And we're meant to look at great people like that and see that really, ultimately, there's nothing that any of us have that we've not been given. And it's meant to make us humble to see that even such great people can die early with a vague disease and be buried in an unmarked grave and, and really leave their family destitute. The greatest of all is not so great. God has a way of humbling us in our human condition so that we see that we need him so that we have hope in him and not ourselves. And so ultimately, it results in worship to him. The Apostle Paul has been addressing the Christians in Rome, and they're a divided church to some degree. You have the churches full of Jews and Gentiles alike. In the Jews that are there, they are become the minority, and the Gentiles have become a little proud and a little condescending towards some of the Jews. Most likely, they were becoming proud that, hey, you guys rejected Jesus, and so now you've been rejected and look at us, we're great. And so there became some division between them. And, and unless you think that that really doesn't apply to us today, I just want you to think for a moment, is there any group of people or Christians that you think you're better than? Is there any group of people that you can think, you know what, well, at least we're not like them. We're much better than them. And somehow inherently you might think that that has something to do with your better understanding. And you think, how dumb are they because they don't understand what we understand. I think it's a common issue, not just for Rome, not just for the Christians there, but it's a common, common concern for us as well. And so the Apostle Paul, he's writing this passage, this, this long passage of Scripture, because he's trying to show the Gentiles that you have nothing to be proud of. He's also showing the Jews that you have hope. 
And then for the whole church, he's trying to show them that this is caused because it's God who gives his grace and chooses some. It's God who rejects some and yet draws some close. And yet all of this is caused for worship so that none of us might boast. And Paul's reminding the Gentiles that all they have is by grace through faith. And even that faith is not a result of any works that they've done. It's, it's initially given to them by God to begin with. They might have cultivated that faith like Mozart cultivated his musical abilities, but he didn't create them to begin with. None of my kids when they were three had any ability to watch my other kids taking piano lessons or watch anybody playing piano and think, I can do that. You know, that's a gift. And Paul's saying to us and to the church in Rome that Gentiles, just because you become Christians, don't think that somehow you created it in yourself and that somehow you're great because of that. And don't condescend towards your fellow Jews or reject them. And I think the key verse, if you're going to look in your Bibles, if you go ahead and look in your Bibles, if you have one with you, if you don't, look on with somebody else or look on your smartphone, just put it on silent or airplane mode there. And look down in verse 22. I think it's really the key to all of these, this whole passage. 22 is really key to understanding what this passage is all about because at times it can be a little confusing. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? A table and all this other stuff and graphs and trees. And where are you going with this, Paul? Well, in verse 22, he provides a little bit of clarity and and he says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And I think that verse is key to really this whole passage, understand what this passage is about, because Paul wants us to see a few things. He wants us to understand really his main idea, if you will, the main idea that we're going to focus on from this passage is that God's kindness and his severity, they are meant to result in in three things, really, we see all throughout this passage, but they're meant to result in, in hope, We see hope in the midst of God's kindness and severity. And we see humility as well. It's meant to result in hope and in humility and then in honor or worship. God's kindness and his severity are meant to result in hope and humility and in honor. Honoring God. Paul's drawing attention to the fact just because the people of Israel didn't believe in Jesus the Messiah, it didn't mean that God rejected them. And that's the first question he's answering. He says, well, did did God reject the Jews then? If If the Jews have been hardened? Did God reject them? Even though they had broken their covenants with the Lord time after time, deserve the punishment of the covenants they have broken? He's saying God has not permanently rejected them. And so what you see here in the midst of kindness to the Gentiles and severity for the Jews is actually hope. God has still not rejected the Jews is what he's saying. And, and we all should derive hope from that. All Christians should divide, derive hope from the fact that God's kindness and severity, they're meant to result in hope. And you may wonder, how can severity result in hope? And Paul's going to explain there, and that's really the first idea, that kindness and severity of God are meant to result in hope. But severity in the sense that we should see that in the midst of God's severity towards the Jews, because they've rejected him, God has rejected them, but in the midst of the severity of God, we can see that God has still not fully rejected the Jews, is what Paul's saying. God's not rejected the Jews. 
even in the midst of unbelief, when they seem too far gone, when it seems like there's no hope for the Jews, like they've all turned away, what Paul's saying is, no, there's still hope because God has not rejected them. You know, how does that apply to us? Maybe you are aware or you have a relative or a friend. Or maybe there's a specific class of people. Or maybe there's a specific people group you can think of. Or maybe there is, you come from a church background and you're convinced that they're not really believers. And you're thinking, I don't know if they ever will be. Or maybe you have a neighbor and you think, there's no way. That guy has so rejected God. He's hardened towards God. There's no way. And we see in the midst of these verses that even though the children of Israel, time after time after time, they rejected God, they rebelled against God, um, and he gives many examples from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah, from David, all throughout. He gives us reasons, the prophets, the law, and the kingship, Israel, all of those three kind of ruling factors of Judaism have all testified to the fact that Israel has been disobedient and rejected God, and yet in the midst of all those things, what he's saying is that God's not rejected Israel. Even those who have been most hardened, there's still hope. And it's hope in God's grace. So for you, we, we need to take that away and say, okay, well, where have we lost faith in God? Where do we feel like someone's too far gone or we're too far gone or someone, a friend, relative neighbor is too far gone? God can still bring them back to him. There's still hope in the midst of rejection. I loved a few years ago, we, we got to get a bunch of caterpillars and we put some caterpillars on these milk milkweeds and we put them in a terrarium and we watched them gobble up all the milkweeds and that was exciting but we wondered what we could do now the milkweeds are out well all of a sudden the caterpillars started hanging and creating these amazing chrysalises around themselves these green chrysalis was almost like gold flecks around them and it was amazing but then as I started reading about what's happening inside there is the caterpillar is actually breaking down he's dying in a sense he's he's reconstituting and it's no longer a caterpillar it's like goo and I I I don't know if you've ever cut a chrysalis open when it was shortly after that it's just goo inside I mean, I'm not encouraging you to do that. You just go ahead and wait for the monarch butterfly to, to emerge. It's, it's better. But if you, if you see it, it, there's something about it. Just, it kind of it breaks down. And it looks like it's too far gone if you ever broke one open. It's too far gone. There's no way that that's something good could come out of that. And yet, somehow, God causes this dramatic change to, transfer, to, to happen. And, and so this, this goo becomes somehow a butterfly And God brings something through something that looked like it was dead. And there's hope in even examples like that in creation. There's hope in nature. There's hope in the seasons. In the dead of winter, the season I hate the most, when all the leaves have fallen off the trees, there's hope that spring will come anew. But the hope is not because of spring. The hope is because of God who is able to take things that look like they're completely gone and bring life through them. And that's what Paul is kind of laying out here for the Gentiles and for the Jews alike. And, and, and there's some little bit of irony here too. I don't, know if it, I don't think it was intended, but there's some irony as you're reading Scripture and you're realizing that Paul, he's, he's giving himself as the first example of, how do I know there's still hope? Because of me. Right? That's what he says. Look down your Bibles. He says, how do I know there's hope? Because, because, of, because of me. Look at me. I'm, I am, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now think about that. His name was actually Saul before from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul the king was from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And so there's some irony here. We even look at Paul and see that where Saul the king had been exalted, he ultimately rejected the anointed one, King David. And yet Paul, God was able to break through the apostle Saul, Paul's life, to arrest him, to stop him, and to keep him from rejecting the anointed king. And so there's even irony in Paul's life. But that's not part of the scripture. I just thought that was an interesting point to look at. The apostle Paul ends up dying because of acceptance of the rule of the anointed one, Jesus. God's able to, to bring from what seems rejected, bring hope. And Paul says, look at me. I, I, I'm here. And he says, God's not rejected. Look in verses 2 and 3. God's not rejected the people he foreknew. And he calls some more witnesses to the fact that God's not rejected his chosen people, even, even though it looks like it has. And, and it's very common for Paul through the book of Romans. He doesn't cite the passages, but he's quoting all over the Old Testament to show, to build an argument the fact that this is nothing different. This is not a new thing. I'm not creating a new theology here, he says. And he calls a witness Elijah from Kings 19. He says, you know, Elijah had the same problem. And he, and he shares, look down your Bibles there. Verses 3 and 4. Elijah, he was facing the fact that no one he knew was following God. I don't know if you've ever been in an environment like that before. When you're surrounded by, by unbelievers who are against God, not only do they not know God, but they're worshiping false gods. That was Elijah's condition back in his day. And Elijah says, there is no one around who follows God. Now, he wasn't using hyperbole. He probably really was not aware of anybody following God. And he was lamenting. He was feeling sorry for himself like, oh gosh, there's no one, there's no way that, that God can keep a people because it's just me who remains. Look in, in the end of verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, I alone am left, and they seek my life. What's Elijah saying? He's in despair. I'm the only one left, God, and, and they're going to kill me. There's no hope. And yet, God says, no, there is hope. In verse 4, he says, what's God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed down to their need to bail. And God corrects him and says, no, I've kept a remnant. You just can't see them. You don't know about it. There's still hope in me. Even when all hope seems lost, when people seem too far gone, when situations seem desperate and hopeless, there's hope in the midst of things because I'm able to save and then look in, in verse 5. So Paul makes that connection. He says at the present time there's a remnant as well. And that continues today. There's, there continues to be a remnant of the people of Israel today who God has preserved. And he uses some quotes from Elijah. And he uses later he's going to use some quotes from Isaiah and from King David. And if you look back through history, you think there's been times in history when it seemed very dark, when it seemed like there was no hope for Christianity, when it seemed like the church was dead. There's a time, if you look in the Middle Ages, where it looked like the, what had been the church had become so political that it was no longer the church at all. And in the midst of that, there was still a remnant that was not seen that God preserved. That's why we're here. God preserved a remnant. There's hope. God's able to change even the bleakest situations, the darkest times, even in the midst of false religious systems. Paul's point we see in verse 5 is the remnant has always been chosen by God's grace. Because of God's choosing, calling, electing grace, there is always hope. Maybe this morning you've lost hope. 
for someone or for something or for yourself. You say, no, there's still hope even in the darkest hours. And it's an encouragement that we can trust and rely on God even in the darkest, most oppressive time. God still calls people by his grace. He says, but if it's by grace, then it's not on the basis of works, meaning that the Israelites could no longer say that they were coming to God on the basis of works because if it's by grace, a a new way to come to Jesus has been instituted that's no longer by works. That's what he says in verse six. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. So don't know, know for those people who think today still that somehow the Jews will be saved. This is a funny notion. It's an unbiblical notion. The Jews will be saved apart from grace and faith in Jesus Christ. That is unbiblical that would be by works. There is, it is by grace, God's grace, that people are saved. There is no merit. And then he goes on in verse 7 and 8. He says, what, what then if Israel failed to attain it of seeking? He says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes would not see, ears would not hear, down to the very day. He's saying what, what happened is that Israel, they refused to hear and respond to God long enough that they could no longer hear from God. They refused the Messiah, and their refusal to submit to God's Messiah, not a Messiah of their own making, was what led to their, their hearts being darkened, and, and their, they have a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see, ears that wouldn't hear. And Paul's pointing out another sobering reality that that they heard the truth, they didn't respond, and so they were, because they were unable to respond because of the rejection of God. Jesus talked about something similar, didn't he, in Matthew? We have the, the passage for you, Matthew 13. Jesus here, he explains this kind of principle here. He says, for the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But one who has not, even when he has, will be taken away. This is why I speak them in parables, because they seeing, they do not see, hearing, they do not hear, they don't understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You indeed hear, but never understand. You'll see, but never perceive. For this people's, and he gives the reason, Jesus tells the reason, is ultimately in them. For the people's hearts had grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes have closed, thus they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And even in Jesus' words, there remains hope. When people have turned away from God, hardened their hearts, if we would turn, if they would turn, if people turn back to God, he will heal them. Even those who become numb to God, Paul is saying here, the Jews, they, they've become in a state of stupor. They're numb and they're darkened, and yet there is, all hope is not lost. They've not been completely cut off. And then he goes on in verses 9 and 10, and he gives, he gives another witness. He's already called the prophet Elijah, he's already has a witness to the fact that there's still hope, even when God's people seem to be cut off. And now he calls David as a witness here in verses 9 and 10. Look down your Bibles. It says, David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And you might be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Let their table? Paul, what? Most likely what he's talking about is when David was rejected by the, if you remember, David was actually at first not accepted by all of Israel. He was rejected by most, except for his own tribe until God made it clear that he was the one, but he was rejected by most. And so in the midst of David's rejection, the anointed one's rejection, the precursor to the Messiah, is why Paul's bringing him in here. He shows that when David was rejected, he prayed that the people who rejected them, that their very table would become a snare to them, that what they ate and their enjoyment would become a snare to them and retribution. And here, though, Paul is using this quote to show that 
David's prayers have kind of been answered in, in a sense that the Jews who rejected the Messiah, the real anointed one, the Jews who rejected the real anointed one, their table, the, the things, the very habits and disciplines that were given by God to actually honor God and glorify God, all of their specific ways of eating and dishes and all those kinds of things, all the sacrificial system, the worship system that was actually meant to point them to God instead became a stumbling block. That's what he's talking about here. Their table, their practices, their dietary practices, their differences have actually become a stumbling block instead and their eyes have been darkened, they've been bent over, they've been humbled because they rejected the Messiah, the anointed one, right? So you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, but even in the midst of that, look in verse 11, so I asked that they stumble in order they might fall. Even in the midst of that, the darkness that we see around, that people rejected, even their, their rituals have caused them to turn away from God and reject him, and so God has made them dark. In verse 11, he says, so I asked that they stumble in order they might fall. He says, by no means, there's still hope. He's pounding home the message, there's still hope. He says, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And he's saying that this is kind of a funny thing. You don't think about it, but actually you coming to Jesus is actually meant to make Jews jealous. Jews seeing all the privileges and blessings that we have in the covenant with Jesus is meant to make them say, I want that too. Even today. Even today, all the blessings and goodness that God has given to you is meant to make people around you say, I want that I want those blessings. I, I want to have that joy. I want to have peace in the midst of a hurricane. I want to have trust in God even when things stink. I want to have hope in God. And, 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 and really, that is how God brings people to him. He says, Israel may have looked like they stumbled and fell away from God for good, but God is intended to bring the Gentiles for salvation so that they would provoke Israel to jealousy so that they turn back to God. And he would use Gentiles actually to bring hope to Israel. And what Paul says in, verses, in verse 12 there is that if God has blessed us unimaginably, if he's brought so many riches to us outside of his original covenant with Israel, he's brought a covenant to us through Jesus and, and, and he has given these unimaginable blessings in the midst of his own people rejecting them, then imagine how great it's going to be when Israel fully accepts Jesus as the Messiah, when we're all brought together in worship. That's what he says in verse 12. How much more will the full inclusion mean? God's kindness and severity are meant to result in hope, hope that a remnant remained, hope that even those who reject God will be brought to him, hope in his sovereignty, hope in his grace and his mercy. And also, the second thing we see in verses really 13 to 24 there is that his kindness and severity are meant to result in humility. They're meant to result in hope and in humility. He's saying, Gentiles, don't be so proud. There's still hope for the Jews, but don't be so proud that you've been brought in that somehow it's of your own doing. And in verse 13, he says, Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. And as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. What's he saying? He's saying, part, don't get so proud. Part of the very reason why I was called to you, Gentiles, in the first place was so that Jews might come to him. So don't think you're so great. God's using you in a good way to bring his original chosen people back to him. And then in verse 15 he says, the rejection meant the reconciliation of the world. What were the acceptance mean but life from the dead? The blessings he experienced in all Israel responds would be so great it would be like bringing life from the dead. 
And then in verse 16, he talks about this first fruits imagery. If a, if a priest was offering first fruits, they would, they would take a lump of dough from the, the, the bigger piece of dough and they would offer it to God and it would become sanctified and holy. And then in, by inference, the rest of the lump would be holy. And so Paul is saying, you're that rest of the lump. The, the Israelites are the first lump of dough. They were made holy and, and now you've been brought in. But also the rest of Israel will be brought in too. The rest of the lump will be brought in and made holy. If Abraham was wholly accepted, then one day his descendants will be made holy and accepted. And then he said, don't be proud. You're just a bunch of branches. You've been engrafted in. You're not the original tree to begin with. Don't be proud. Be humble. Realize that what you have is a gift from God. Look in verses 17 and 18. He gives an illustration here from nature. If you were to go to the Middle East today, you would see they still practice the same thing. And, and you can go, if you can't go as far as the Middle East, you could go up to Justice Orchards up in North Carolina. And they practice the same thing. And I love Justice Orchards. I actually like it better than Skytop. I know that's blasphemy here, but um, I love it because you can talk to them and they, you, they'll tell you things and they're nice and they're kind and they'll tell you about how they grow the trees and give you a tour and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things they showed me when I went around last time was that they have developed a new way of growing their trees, which is really an old way, and they created this, they have this wonderful wild dwarf apple tree stock that grows really hardy. And so they'll splice on a Fuji or Jonah Gold or whatever kind of apple they want. They'll splice on a branch into that hardy dwarf stock that really wasn't compared to the fruit they wanted. And it creates this really prolific fruit tree. But Paul uses this example in a different way. He says, this wild olives, in, in Israel what they would do is they'd go and dig up, they'd go into the hillside, and they would get these wild olive trees that had developed strength from being exposed to storms and wind, but they were scrawny and they didn't produce very good fruit, they didn't make much olive oil. And so they would dig these olive trees up, they would bring them into the vineyard, and then they would cut off the cultivated olive shoots and they would graft them in. But Paul flips the illustration on his head and he says, no, you are the wild branches and you've been grafted in. It's not natural. And in, and in horticulture, it wouldn't work that way. And in olive trees, it doesn't work that way either. There would be no fruit produced by taking a wild branch and putting it in a natural olive tree. No fruit will come out because the fruit's determined by the branch that's stuck into it. And so what Paul is saying is that you only bear fruit by God's grace. You wouldn't bear any fruit on your own. It's completely against nature. Yes, you've been grafted in, but don't even think the fruit you bear is somehow your own because any fruit you bear, and you bear much fruit, but the fruit you bear, it's an unnatural thing. It must be by God's grace. And you can see that he's saying that if you look down to verse 24, it says, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature there into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in? So I'm gonna skip back again. Verse 20 says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. What's he saying? He's saying, oh, your faith is so great. That's wonderful. No, he's saying, the only reason that you are there is because you have faith. So don't be so proud. Don't think that somehow you bring something, that you produce fruit on your own. Don't think that somehow um, your works have, have brought you into Israel, into God's people. Don't think that somehow, hey, you know, because I'm so smart and I understood all this and I put the Bible together and I studied all these years that somehow that's the reason. He's saying, no, don't, don't become proud, but look in verse 20, but stand in awe. Stand in awe. 
Look at verse 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Meaning, remain grounded in your faith in God, your trust in him. Don't waver and think that somehow you are part of God's people by any other means. Stay in the place of humility. Stay in awe of God. Stay in the place where you are daily putting your faith, your trust in Him alone and not in your works. That's what he's saying. Because if you ultimately, if you're trusting your works, then you're going to prove that you really haven't been grafted in and He won't spare you. Now look down at verse 25. He says, Let you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For some reason, God has chosen to partially harden, to partially harden the people of Israel until, until all of Israel is brought into his kingdom. And it's only due to the mercy of God that we're part of his people at all. We only bring faith that's none of ourselves. Humility that we've been grafted in. Humility that's all of grace. Humility that one day the Jews are going to be brought back in. We're not that special. You see, not only is God's kindness and severity meant to bring us hope to see that he can bring even those who we think are rejected into him. It's meant to bring us humility that really it's all of grace. It's all by faith of, of his grace. But it's also meant to result in honor. Not our own honor, but in God's honor. God's severity and his kindness were meant to result in honoring him when we see that he was so severe with the Israelites and yet he spared us that brings humility. His kindness brings humility. It brings hope as well that one day he will spare them. And then also should result in worship in verses 26 to 36 or honor. And here's the, the, the mystery here. There's, there's a lot of mystery in these verses. In all of this passage, there's a lot of mystery. I don't know how this passage speaks to the fact that one day, somehow, in the future, at some point, God will bring all of physical Israel. Now, I don't mean the nation, but the physical people, the physical descendants of Israel, one day will be brought back to God in belief in the Messiah. That one day, they're going to have faith in Jesus. Now, I don't know how that transpires or when that will transpire, but somehow God will use the Gentiles to provoke them to just such jealousy and will use the riches and kindness of God to the Gentiles to, to testify to them and somehow they'll be brought into faith in Jesus. And that's meant to cause worship for us and to honor God. You know, he's quoting here, he's actually quoting Moses. He's not, he's not creating a new doctrine, but he's speaking prophetically. Now, he's also not saying that all the people of Israel in the past who rejected God will be brought to salvation. He's not saying that because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It would make no sense in Romans. And salvation is only through one way, through Jesus Christ and being justified in him. So we know what he's not saying in the very context of what he's been writing all along. But what he's saying is that somehow there's going to come a day when God's going to bring all of his descendants that remain on the earth of Israel. He's going to bring them all to him. And that's cause for worship and praise and honor. That God's able to do that, to bring a people who seem so far gone that they rejected him. And God's able to break through and bring them to faith in the Messiah. 
He says in verse 28, right now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, those people in the future, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God did not forget his promises. One day, he'll bring the descendants of Israel who are alive back to him. And then he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And that's meant to to bring worship to God, both for Jew and Gentile alike. All the gifts you've been given by God, all, all the gifts of his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, it's irrevocable, is what he's saying. God's kindness, his mercy, his, his generosity, his grace towards you is irrevocable. His calling towards you, if you've responded to God, it's irrevocable. He won't rescind his calling and say, nope, my bad, I was just joking. No, they're irrevocable. It's meant to give us Hope and also meant to cause us to worship God. And look at verse 30 and 31. It says, just at one time you were disobedient to God, but now receive mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Salvation is always by mercy. It was my mercy for you is what he's saying. And it's going to be by mercy for the Israelites when they come to him again. It's always going to be through mercy, and it's despite disobedience. And by the way, he's reminding both Jew and Gentile alike, it's in the midst of disobedience that God does bring mercy. Otherwise, it's not mercy to begin with. You wouldn't need mercy if you weren't disobedient and going against God. And what he's saying is you've received mercy in your disobedience. and their disobedience, there's hope for mercy. And let that cause you to praise God. He says in verse 32, for God's consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And somehow in the mystery of God, his mercy is magnified in saving those who are disobedient so that he might have mercy. And then that causes Paul to break out in the song. That's to be an effect for us as well. It's meant to give us hope and humility that we might honor God, that we might get to the place where we say, you know what, it's all of grace. In the midst of my disobedience, God saved me. He gave me mercy when I was not looking for it, when I did not deserve mercy. Um, he gave me undeserved mercy, and somehow God's gonna give undeserved mercy to the people of Israel when they don't deserve it either, and that should cause worship. And so Paul breaks out into worship here, and look in verse 33 through verse 36. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How just mind-blowing is that, is what Paul's saying. This is mind-blowing. The depths of the riches and knowledge and the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. His ways are unfathomable by human minds. And we can't explain why God does what he does, but we can stand in awe and in worship. And we can praise him and say, God, your ways are far higher than my ways. God, I don't understand why you've done it this way, but God, thank you that you've shown mercy to me. And that's meant to resolve, result in worship to God. It's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking down and saying, I, I, don't, I can't even see the bottom. It's unfathomable. I can't, this is just magnificent. I can't see the end of all of God's ways. They're, just, they're too great for me. They're impossible to understand. His ways are fathomless. They're deeper than we can sound out or measure. You know, a fathom was how they, how they measured depth on a ship. They would they'd drop a rope over and, the, and they, would, they, would, they would try to figure out how deep it was. They would try to figure out the depth of something. He's saying his ways are fathomless. You can't figure out the depth of God's mercy, the depth of his glory, the depth of his grace. 
And all this is meant to show just how mind-blowing God is. And he says, you know, think about it for a moment. This should humble you. In verse 34, he says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? You know, start to question, before we start to question God, say, God, why have you done things this way? God, this doesn't seem right to me. This, This doesn't really seem fair. Remember mercy. Mercy is not about fairness. Mercy is is giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it. Actually deserves the opposite. That's what the Paul's asking ourselves, wait a minute, what, I, before I think that I'm so smart that I can sit in judgment over God, let me ask you one question. Have you ever told God what he should do? Really? And you really knew best? You know, who, who can counsel God for real? Now you've probably tried. Like, God, this doesn't seem right. God, I, I feel like this is better for me, Lord. And Paul's saying, you know, Really? Can you really give counsel to God? Are you really smarter than him? Verse 35, who's given a gift to God that he might be repaid? You know, God is not beholding to you. Like, what gift would you come up with that you would give to God that he couldn't create or didn't have already? So be humble and worship. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, only someone who has something more than another can loan or give that thing to somebody who doesn't have it. But if God's able to create something from nothing, what do you think you're going to school him in? That just very idea of creation ex nihilo, from nothing, that, 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 that idea is just mind-blowing to me. And Paul says, from him are all things. And he made all things. He understands everything's made. He made all things. From him, before God was nothing, so everything you see in, to some, in some degree, in some way, came from God. Who of you can say that? Is what Paul's saying. And he says, and through him came all things. Are you going to create? I don't see you creating things. Now, we can take things that God created and make them into other things, but that's just repurposing. It's not creation. And he says, and to him are all things, meaning all of what we see around us and all of creation is meant to be for his glory. He's trying to show the limitations of our ability to understand God. You know, C.S. Lewis used the example once of a shellfish trying to explain to another shellfish what a human was like. And he says, well, he doesn't have a shell. You know, the shellfish is like, what? There exists a creature with no shell? And he doesn't need to be attached to a rock. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, doesn't he float around the current? No, get this. He's not even in water. What? How does he eat? Because we filter water. That's how we eat. So, so there's this creature that doesn't have a shell. Is he jelly? And he's not attached to a rock. And he's not in water, so he doesn't eat anything. And so all these other shellfish, they try to help this one shellfish explain what a, a human must be like and that he exists in a plane, in a, an existence that they've never been in. It's a foreign concept to them. And so what really emerges in C.S. Lewis's example is this illustration of man as this amorphous jelly that is always hungry and wandering freely on something called land in this vast foreign expanse. And what he was trying to do in that illustration is showing just how silly it is for us to try to figure out God. You know, a shellfish can't comprehend a human, which really, there's a, there's a lot of differences, but in comparison between us and God, there's, 
It doesn't compare. The difference between us and God are vast. For from him came all things. Through him came all things. And to him are all things. God's incomprehensible and it's meant for us to respond to him in worship. The fact that he would relate to us at all when we have rebelled against him. The fact that he draws people even when they've rejected him. He continues to draw people. That he, he reserves a remnant for himself. That God is the giver of all good gifts. That he gives us his grace because of his mercy. He gives us faith as well. All of those things, what Paul is saying here, is meant to say, look, church, stop dividing, acting like you are better than one another. All of us really are beholding to God from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. You know, when I hear the music, I listened to it this morning, Mozart sonatas when I was getting ready, and symphonies, and I, I just, it's hauntingly beautiful. And it reminds me of the beautiful gifts of God. And it's humbling too, because those must be gifts. And it makes my heart swell, and yet it's sobering. It reminds me that all of life is a gift from God. Our hope is ultimately in God, not even in our gifts, but our hope is in God. And then we're, we're dependent upon God. It's humbling. It makes me feel small. And yet it shows the greatness and the glory of God. He's able to work in and through humanity, and he does in beautiful ways. And any contribution that we bring to the table, really, it's, it's meant to showcase God's gifts and bring him honor and worship. So I think it's an appropriate place that we look and see the Jews, the Israelites, in, in Romans 11, that we are filled with those three things I mentioned in the beginning, that we are filled with hope, that we're filled with humility, and we're filled with a sense of wanting to honor God with our lives. Well, let the band go ahead and come up and I'll pray. Father, thank you that you are able to save to the uttermost. That no one is too far gone. Thank you, God, that the only reason that we have come to you is by your grace. God, thank you that you've grafted us in, Lord, and that by faith, we are a part of your people and that you've given us that gift of faith. God, thank you that one day you're going to bring all of, all of your descendants of Israel to you. And God, we don't know how that's going to happen, but we glory in you, we look to you, and we thank you that we get to be a part of that. So God, I pray that we will worship you and honor you for, for bringing us to you, for the mercy you've shown to us, and for what you're going to continue to do, and for the fact that you... You bring people who are against you to you. God, may we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand and we'll sing.